Hello and welcome to Real Industry, Real Talk. My name is Tom and this podcast series is intended to give you an overview of many different types of businesses from the real people who work in them. Today we are on episode 3 and we have Adam Hathaway, an advanced EMT from the US who is going to tell us about the business of saving lives, what it's like to work in an ambulance and how he got started in EMS. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you do, and a little bit about the company you work for. Uh, So uh, my name is Adam Hathaway. I'm an advanced emergency medical technician. I work for a uh, transporting 911 response ambulance service, as well as um, on my side job, I work for a fire department doing non-transport 911 rescue and firefighting. Um, the service I work for mainly is a uh, kind of smaller four ambulance, uh, more rural service, uh, working outside of a big city doing 911 response and a lot of inter-facility transfers of patients. Okay, so if you had, let's break it down to two parts. Let's talk about the ambulance service first, the rural ambulance service. If you had to describe exactly what you do there on a daily basis, so you go up on a shift, what is it like? Uh, the majority of my time spent on shift is downtime. We only do get about um, two calls on average in a given shift. Sometimes there's five, but still a lot of my time in a 12 or a 24-hour shift is just downtime. Um making sure everything's all set up on the trucks and waiting for uh, us to be dispatched via the radios we have built into our station. And then it's somebody will call 911, and of course we respond and go to work. So if you had to describe um, what a call looks like from start to finish, from the minute you get the call to the minute you are done with the call, if that's uh, a good way of phrasing it. So um, the the normal flow for a true emergency call um, would be that normally we're, we're sitting at the station and uh, what happens is the tones drop, as we call it. So two specific tones um, play over the radio, which trips our pagers and the station radio and dispatch will tell us where we're going, what we're going to. Uh, if it's something serious, we'll, we'll head pretty quickly out to the ambulance because our bunk room is like directly behind the ambulance. And, um, We'll go, if it's something really serious, we'll use the lights and siren, but the service I work for is pretty conservative. Probably 60-70% of the time we're not using the lights and siren. Um, Then we'll get on scene, and the biggest thing is getting information on what's going on and then mitigating any immediate threats to life. So if somebody's not adequately breathing or they're um, unconscious, we, we find out what's going on right now how we can stabilize them in the short term and get them out to the ambulance, and then we go to work on that. Afterward, we'll get them out into the ambulance, start hooking them up to some of our monitoring devices, like a cardiac monitor, and then monitor pulse and blood pressure and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we'll do our medium-term stabilization, so more routine interventions, um, uh, getting IV access, giving any meds that weren't critical, but we should be giving the patient given their presentation and just making sure that they're going to be stable from the ambulance into the emergency room. 
after we do all that, we call the hospital over the radio and give a report to the charge nurse and let him or her know who we are, when we're going to be there, and what we're bringing them. Then, of course, we just keep monitoring and doing what we can do for the patient until we get to the hospital. Then it's just a quick unload. We'll be assigned a room to go to normally when we give our radio report. So we'll go to that room or we'll check in with the triage nurse if we haven't been given a room, um, give a report to the patient's actual nurse in the hospital, and then get signatures for our billing and privacy paperwork. And we're pretty much all complete with the call there. All we have left to do afterward is go back, uh, write the report, and normally I like to debrief with the people I'm working with, talk about what we think was going on, what we could do better next time, things like that. But then afterwards the call is all complete, and it normally takes between an hour and a half to two and a half hours for all of that to take place. Okay, so... Uh... I'm trying to understand your specific role in the company. So you, your title is, correct me if I'm mistaken, if I'm mistaken, uh, Advanced Emergency Medical Technician. That's, uh, that's what you said? Yep, that's my title and licensure. Okay, so what does that mean in the actual um, hierarchy of your operation? Um, so in transport EMS, um, at least in Maine, there's really three different levels. Um, there are other ones, but not a lot of services delve into those. Um, we've got EMT basics, advanced EMTs, and paramedics. I'm in the middle where I'm technically an advanced life support provider. I can do invasive interventions such as um, some advanced airways and IV access and some medications, um, as opposed to our paramedics who can do anything pre-hospitally that that EMS can really do. Um, so they can intubate, they can give a whole host of medications. They are the ones in charge on the call and they're paid really more to use their brains because they get extra year and a half of schooling and they, they really know exactly what's going on for 99% of the calls. So they're the ones really running the show um, advanced EMTs, we tend to do more of the, the normal interventions, so IV access and things like that will get set up under the medic's direction. And then we have EMT basics who essentially will work with the really lower acuity patients, uh, can give oxygen, and can perform the most basic functions of an EMS call. Right. So the paramedics run the show and the EMTs actually do the work, if I'm correct. Yeah, uh, there are a lot of interventions that the paramedics do that um, lower levels can't do. So if somebody needs to be intubated or if um, in certain situations specific drugs need to be given, like narcotics, those are only going to be administered by the paramedics. Uh, but otherwise, their main role is to kind of stand back and orchestrate the call and then intervene as they need to. Right. Okay, I think I get the picture. Um, let's talk a little bit about training, and then we'll move on to some other interesting things. Uh, so you mentioned the fact that there's a year, a year and a half of gap 
between the training you got and you know AEMT gets and the one paramedics get. So can you uh, give a little brief about what kind of training is there for uh, EMS people? And specifically, if you could, um, what types of pre um, previous experiences do uh, people go into the business with? I'll, I'll clarify. Uh, so let's say you just, you're now an EMS, um, an invest EMT, sorry. Uh, what is uh, the job you previously did usually? Are they usually nurses? Are they usually people who volunteered? Do they come from all walks of life? You just give us the entire process, I guess. So uh, people really get into EMS from anywhere. Uh, I started off as a volunteer firefighter with no medical experience whatsoever and went through an EMT basic class, which in my area, all EMS education is done through our local community college. And so I took a night class two days a week and got my EMT basic license in one semester. And it took me from basically no medical knowledge to being able to handle lower acuity patients by myself. Um, some people do come from like nursing or other healthcare roles, but a lot of them, they can go to other states and do a bridge program where nurses can basically test out and transfer their RN over to a paramedic certification. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not something that's really done in Maine. Mostly I see a lot of paramedics will go to nursing school after the fact to continue their careers. Right. So usually the other way around. Paramedics go and become nurses and not nurses going and becoming paramedics. Yeah. And then um, a lot of paramedics will go off and become uh, physician assistants or even a couple I know are off in school to be an MD and a DO. Right. So right. it's cool. it's really an entry point into healthcare for a lot of people. Right. Um, as far as the, the training goes, like I said, for EMT basic in Maine, it's just a one semester course um, that you take during nights, two nights a week, or some people do day classes. It all just kind of varies on what the, the local training center does. And then after that semester, you test out for the National Registry of EMTs. They basically govern all training standards for EMS in the, in the uh, country. And if you can pass both of those tests, you can apply for a state license. And if you pass both of the tests, and um, 99 times out of 100, unless you've got like a criminal record or something, you'll get your license. Um, then for moving up, it's you, you have to start at the lowest level. So you start at basic, and then you move up to advanced EMT, which is another semester, but it's a, um, my class was one day a week, nine to five. And then um, basically every other Saturday, plus we have clinical rotations. So we have to spend X amount of hours in the back of an ambulance and in the emergency room, uh, some hours in the operating room, just kind of rotating through all of the roles where we might be doing skills from. So like when we go into the operating room, we're placing um, blind insertion airways because that's what they do a lot in the operating rooms and it gives us the experience. But there's like tons of hours. I think there's nearly as many hours spent in clinical as spent in class, if not more, just really getting us hands on with the material. Right. Okay. And then, oh, sorry. Continue. Uh, from that, it's the, the same 
kind of process, testing out for the National Registry and getting licensed as an advanced DMT. And then paramedic is about the same, except it's three semesters in total. Um, so it normally takes just a full year because they'll do fall, spring, and summer semester. And they basically dedicate their lives to paramedic school for that year. It's day in, day out, clinicals and class. Right. Um, just to make sure the listeners understand, because I really don't. Uh, so the hierarchy when in healthcare, um, when you're talking, so obviously a physician, any type of doctor will be at the top of the pyramid. Uh, a paramedic will be a little, a little bit uh, below that. A nurse would rank well uh, in like above paramedic, below paramedic. Um, well, I see nurses and paramedics kind of on an equal platform, but they work in such different environments. Um, a nurse is restricted to only going by doctor's orders. So they do a lot of the same skills and can actually give more medications than paramedics, mm -hmm. but they have to have a doctor's order for it. Whereas paramedics work almost completely autonomously. Mm -hmm. We have uh, what are called standing orders. So we're allowed to make the clinical decisions in the field without consulting with a doctor. And it, it really, it's a smaller scope of practice than a nurse, but the actual decision-making and um, the field experience, I think, is more so. So I, I really put them on par as where they land in, in the hierarchy of healthcare, but it's hard to compare them because the jobs are so different. Right. Back to the pyramid, if you don't mind. So doctors, yeah. uh, paramedics, and nurses, let's just put them on an equal platform for now. Um, advanced EMTs beneath that, regular EMTs beneath that, and do you have any sort of uh, volunteers or medics or some people with very little training that go into actual ambulances? Um, as far as working in the ambulance, the lowest level you can have and work in a transporting ambulance is EMT basic. Right. But um, in some towns, they have what's called an emergency medical responder, which is lower level. They can do the most basic of things like administer oxygen. Um, and then there's the people with just basic first aid who they normally come from like small town fire departments and will first respond and talk to the patient and gather information for us before we show up in the ambulance. Okay. I, I, think, I, get, I think I get the hierarchy. Um, let's talk a little bit about the fire department you work with. Uh, so yeah. just to make sure I understand properly, you have two different jobs, two part-time jobs, one with the fire department, one with the um, ambulance outfit. They are not connected. They're not, uh, they're not the same company. Nope, they're not connected. They're a couple towns away from each other. Right. So if you don't mind me asking, uh, you feel free uh, to skip the question if you don't want to answer it. Um, why work two different jobs in two different towns with all the transit involved? Um, well, the, the fire department is where I first started and basically where my, my loyalties to public safety lie. Um, really, it comes down to I have time in my schedule to work both, and really on their own, they can't pay the bills because uh, mm -hmm. 
public safety is not the best pay in the world. So um, working both, it, it keeps me busy, keeps me with a full schedule. Mm-hmm. And then it also makes sure I can keep the lights on and get a luxury every once in a while. Right. Okay. Uh, that, that makes sense. Um, I do want to talk a little bit, just a tiny little bit about what you do for the fire department and how it differs from the ambulance outfit. And then we'll go on to a little bit of, um, of the process. We'll go on to other interesting things. So the difference between the two outfits. So um, the ambulance itself is when I'm there working a 12 or a 24 hour shift, I'm dedicated to the ambulance and I will only respond to medical emergencies. Um, when I'm working on the fire department, we do have part-time shifts of about 10 and a half hours each that every once in a while I'll pick up one of those, but most of my work for the fire department is callback, so I'll be home and I've got a pager on, and if there's a building fire or technical rescue or just a regular medical call, mm-hmm. uh, my pager will go off and I'm allowed to respond from home to that. Um, right. The As far as the EMS side of things, um, on the fire department, we have a rescue truck, which is capable of emergency care without transport up to the advanced EMT level, as well as we can do things like um, confined space rescue and water rescue and, and a little bit of the, the hairier situations that the ambulance isn't equipped for. Wait, you mentioned the fact that the highest level of rescue truck can, work, uh, can, can do work for is the AMT, right? Yep. And that means you're the primary caretaker in that rescue truck? Uh, yeah, so we have three licensed advanced EMTs on my fire department and one licensed paramedic, uh, but our truck is only equipped to the advanced EMT level, so mm. whether it's us advanced EMTs or the paramedic working, we are only allowed to work up to the advanced EMT level if we're working off of that truck. Mm-hmm. So we're really going to be the highest level of care until our paramedic ambulance backup arrives from out of town. Okay, so let's move on a little bit to uh, the hard details. Can you tell me a little bit about the kind of equipment an AMT uses? And let's just say the main three devices that you would reach for uh, while on a call. What are the main things you do? So the main things I'm going to reach for on a call is um, really first and foremost, as far as a specific piece of equipment is gonna be the cardiac monitor we have on the ambulance. Uh, We use a Physio Control Life Pack 12s. They cost about as much as a BMW, and they (laughs) do a little more than that. Um, I can use them to get really as much clinical data as I could possibly want. They will do um, four and 12 lead EKGs, so I can basically take a picture of your heart um, can you maybe give us a, um, a scale? Like, what, what's the size of such a machine? Um, about the size of a computer monitor, like your average computer monitor in height and width, and then probably eight inches of, of depth. It, it's a pretty bulky, heavy piece of equipment. And you carry it around in a bag, or it's on the actual ambulance and you don't take it on? Uh, It's on the ambulance. If we get calls related um, to cardiac problems, then we will take it off. It's got its own carrying handle, and we'll bring it inside. Okay. Uh, But most of the time, it stays in its 
holder on the ambulance. Right. Okay. Um, and that's the first thing, the cardio monitor. What's the second thing? Uh, the second thing that we probably use the most is going to be really a, a pad of paper and a pen. Really? Yep. As an EMT basic, that was really my, my go-to. Most of what I did was documenting and taking information for the advanced providers. And now I, I find myself still writing down just about everything the patient says and trying to, to connect that to a disease process. Right. So if we're not doing an urgent intervention, then it, it really comes down to just looking at the information, writing it down, and thinking about it. Um, okay. Other than that, most of the time, I'm probably going to find myself just using basic oxygen and airway supplies. So um, just a, a simple oxygen mask or a nasal cannula or something like that, because a lot of our calls involve issues with oxygenation and ventilation. What, what kind of issues for the non-medically trained? What kind of issues we call oxygenation? So uh, if people are having difficulty breathing or there are issues with their circulation, a lot of times they'll need extra oxygen just to make up for the body's deficit. So it's, it's involved in a lot of disease processes that we get called for. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we'll, we'll give supplemental oxygen. Even if somebody's just having a little nausea, just giving them some oxygen can help relieve that. Okay. Uh, okay, I think I get, I get the picture. Um, let's go a little bit to the logistics part of, uh, of your trade. So for the, uh, for the logistical side of things, every day when we come onto shift, it's required that we go through every piece of equipment on the truck, make sure we've got enough of what we need, make sure nothing's expired and everything's in good working order. So we've got sheets that just keep track of everything to make sure we've got it. And um, we've got extra supplies at the station if anything expires or doesn't work. So, so on the logistics side, we keep it pretty well stocked just by checking everything manually every day and after every call. But um, it, it does get challenging because every little thing has its own indications. So we'll, we'll use this one piece of equipment on one very specific type of call which happens maybe once a year, but we have to make sure we've always got it. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's kind of simplified and standardized, but the logistics do get a little out of hand every once in a while. And do you use a computer, like a tablet with a like, spreadsheet on it, or do you use actual sheets of paper with like check marks? Um, just sheets of paper and check marks. Uh, why? If you don't mind me asking, like, why not move to something a bit more formatted, like on a computer or a tablet? Uh, there are a lot of services that will uh, do things like our truck checks online. The, the big issue we found is right now we're trying to get the funding to buy some tablets for the service so that we can try and modernize. But um, it's, it is really difficult to make money in EMS as far as the company's standpoint. So we're, we're looking and trying to get a grant for tablets, but it, it's, it's really difficult to update any equipment because of the lack of funding that comes from working in emergency medicine. Right. Uh, 
if you, that's a, a little bit of a tricky question, but I'm going to answer it anyway, see if it's okay for you to answer. Um, if you could maybe specify the way, not the fire department, but the ambulance outfit makes money, that would be great. And I'll, I'll, I'll be a little bit more specific. So a call is being placed. Who is getting paid approximately what amounts? Um, so the amounts vary greatly. There's there's never any set number, and I I don't know what we charge for like specific interventions and stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, the the actual money gets made for the service on interfacility transport. So taking patients from a hospital to another, or to a nursing home, or sometimes back home if they need to go buy an ambulance. Mm -hmm. Those um, we bill by the mile. So we've taken people, I think, in excess of seven or 800 miles before, and that's what actually pays the bills because it, it requires just paying the people, putting diesel in the ambulance, and not much else because most of the patients that are going that long of a distance are stable and they don't need any serious interventions. Right. Um, emergency calls, we do bill for based on uh, mileage to the hospital and what we actually do, but the the current state of health insurance and health care in the United States, we, we don't get paid for a lot of those transports, so it's really difficult for the service to make money off of those. So oh, wait, uh, really... let, let me pause you for a second. What do you mean you don't get paid for these transports? You did the service, didn't you? So, um, so we do the service, we'll, we'll take the patient, we'll transport them. If they're uninsured or their insurance or their insurance denies the claim, then they get sent to our, our billing and collections. And it, it's, it's like any other collections for like a cable company or something. We'll keep sending them notices saying you have an outstanding bill, but we really can't take any legal action against them as far as as demanding that they pay the bill so a lot of people will just leave their emergency bills unpaid so let me just make sure i get this straight so the fact that the uh well obviously an insurance uh, supplier will deny some claims that's given that will always happen but when that happens you have to by law provide the service you were called for because there's a patient in need and you have to also collect the money which makes sense but you have no legal means to force somebody to pay you the money you are owed am i getting this straight yeah so we do we have to provide the service um no matter what i don't find out if a patient's insured until after we drop them off at the hospital um so always we're going to provide the service um, and then with, with the billing, we, we really don't have any ways. We can take some people to, uh, to a civil court and sue if they have outstanding medical bills, but a service as small as mine really doesn't have the, the ability to do that for the outstanding debt that our, our patients owe us. Uh, because it would be a lot in legal fees and things like that to to take every single one of them, or at least the big ones, to court over it. Right. Okay. I think I get it. Uh, moving on. Sorry, this just kind of rattled me because you know this these kinds of inefficiencies 
happen in you know, many other fields and in many other situations. But hearing this, you know, from a medical professional who sole responsibility, and I imagine your sole purpose when you do the job is not collecting money, but you know, saving lives. It, it bothers me internally. Like it, it kind of sits wrong. If you get what I mean. Yeah, it, it's definitely something that I was surprised by when I first got into EMS. Um, when I first joined on my service, they just kind of casually mentioned that we had, I think it was something in the neighborhood of like $600,000 in outstanding bills to patients that they had basically written off because they didn't expect to be paid for them. Right. I, I didn't see how that was possible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we, we, let's move on. Uh, so... I do want to talk a little bit about um, the way your the ambulance service, not the fire department, uh, gets their clients. So I imagine you're stationed in a, in a certain area and you respond to calls in a certain area, right? Yep, we have two towns that we cover, and if somebody calls nine one one within those two towns, we are always getting called. Along with um, other towns, if their ambulance isn't available, we'll respond as mutual aid. So there's a few contractors and a private contractors, small private contractors that run ambulances, and they each one operates in a certain uh, region, a few towns maybe. And if somebody in the next region or two regions over need assistance, he would also go there. And there's like a network of like maybe I don't know, 10, 15 contractors in the same area that might be called in the I don't know 100, 150 mile radius, right? Yeah, pretty much along those lines. Um, a lot mm -hmm. of the uh, services are fire department based, so they're municipal and not private contractors like my service. Right. But we all work in the same way that if the next town over or two or three towns even over needs us, we'll go there. And if somebody calls within our area, we'll go to them. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about on the job training. So you mentioned the fact that you have your basic training, not on basic, but your formal training. Uh, before you join the actual ambulance service. And do you do some sort of maybe monthly um, education or some mandatory training you have to go through? Is there some sort of program like that? And do you do, like, do you write the trainings yourselves or is there some sort of format or how do you actually go about forming these trainings monthly? Uh, we have a um, person on the service who is in charge of all of our training. Most of the time it goes down to our training officer and she coordinates things for us every single month, which are actually, they, they do really good trainings and I, I learn a lot from them, almost more than I learned in my initial schooling sometimes. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the job opportunities in the, in the field. So you mentioned the, the few different roles an EMT can go through. So basic EMT, advanced EMT, perhaps paramedic or nursing school. And of course, uh, becoming uh, paramedics and physicians and all of the advanced caretakers. So if uh, somebody is interested in joining EMS in general, what would you advise them to look up, uh, look up first? Which areas do you think are most interesting right now? Uh, pay the best? Like, Give us a little bit of an overview of your view as an experienced person uh, in the industry. So if somebody wants to get into EMS, um, the, the first thing I would say as far as how to get into it is looking around. Um, a lot of 
smaller ambulance services and smaller fire departments will hire people on just to drive the ambulance, but they still get to make the, the contact with the patient on scene, help out in the back before they transport to the hospital and, and do a little here and there. And oh, wait, those... a person with a regular driving license can drive an ambulance? As long as they've taken an emergency vehicles operators class. Right. So there's a special class to drive the ambulance, but really the prerequisite is having just a driver's license. And if services are short-staffed, then they'll hire drivers. Right. Okay. Yeah, sorry, continue. So um, that's, that's a good entry point. I know a couple people who have started out just as ambulance drivers. And then um, a lot of those services, if you, you know, are a, a good employee, they'll actually help pay for your EMT class because these days they're starting to get expensive. My EMT basic class was, I think, twelve hundred dollars, mm -hmm. and not a lot of people can front that cost out of pocket. So if you can right. get in with a fire department or an ambulance service, they'll help out with that normally. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's just find a local class, and if if you can foot the bill, take it. And there are a lot of services right now that are, well, actually, I think just countrywide, there's a massive EMT shortage. So if you get the license, then chances you can work under it, depending where you are. Do you have any, any like any knowledge of, I don't know, brands or uh, foundations that are giving away, or maybe some of it or all of that tuition needed to uh, cover the EMT class? A lot of that is um, region specific. I don't know. I I know that there are some like national and international grants for it. But when I did my research for my classes, it a lot of it came down to actually the local towns. People donated scholarships. Um, and actually, the, the place that I took my EMT classes through, they, every once in a while, will offer just a free class to get new people into it that's funded by donations and scholarships. Right. So there are a lot of options. They're just all region specific and they're really local from my experience okay okay um i want to ask a few uh, a few last questions and then we're going to wrap it up so if you had one online source or hangout space or even a local physical location where you would go and meet people and discuss um, your thoughts your problems your issues maybe raise ideas all of this kind of um, community support, where would you go to? Um, mostly I go to Reddit. The, the EMS subreddit is where I connect with other people like myself. Um, I think that's really the biggest one. I spend a lot of time on that. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, well, I guess that's, that, that's all right. Uh, so one last question. Uh, if you had any one pain point, like something that really, really, really bugs you, and you could have like a magic wand that fixes it instantaneously. What would it be? Oh, that is a really good question. Um, one thing that really bugs me that I could, that if I could fix it, I would, I would have to say it would be that a lot of states and services are slow at adopting new medical practices. Um, I read a lot of journal articles and stuff, so there's there are huge steps being taken in emergency medicine that whenever I talk to one of the paramedics I work with or something, they'll, they'll kind of laugh and say, yeah, Maine won't see that for 10 or 20 years or so. Right. 
Really? So I, if I could, I would really try to streamline how we're doing things as far as updating our protocols and, and really trying to be at the forefront of pre-hospital medicine like a lot of other states are doing. Right. Uh, can you give an example maybe of a procedure you heard about you don't think is going to enter your service anytime soon? Um, I guess one of the things that I, I spoke to one of my paramedics about recently was uh, blood products being given in the pre-hospital setting, so in the ambulance. Right. Um, there are some services, uh, like our local air ambulance, they're allowed to give blood products, but to my knowledge, in the state of Maine, there are no ground ambulances that are able to carry blood products, and um, the studies I was reading showed a huge increase in survivability for especially trauma patients and then some patients who are having um, like severe shock from from medical cause just really across the board having the access to blood products really helped patient survivability but it's something that requires training and it requires a lot of logistic networks to be set up because blood products do expire quickly and need to be kept in certain temperatures so um, it's something that I'm sure my service in particular and a lot of the other services around it won't be seeing at least for, I'd think, a decade, if even at all, just because of the logistics are so difficult to, to manage that services really can't afford the cost, even though there's this huge jump in survivability for certain patients. Okay. Um, I do have one last like, something that just popped into my mind that I, it's not the reason I'm doing this podcast, but it is interesting to me. Psychologically wise, when you engage with patients on a daily basis, there are some survive, some do not. Um, do you get some sort of um, psychological evaluations and ways to handle these situations, which I can only imagine are not easy? Uh, we are given access to opportunities, uh, especially if we have a particularly bad call. We have the option to the the service will refer us to somebody if we if we need to reach out for any sorts of traumatic stress related to the job. Mm -hmm. But it um, if we have something bad, like a while ago, we had um, a couple of teenagers uh, involved in a fatal car accident, and there were probably. 20 people on scene throughout the ambulance and the fire department that all came together for the debriefing because we all needed to talk it out for for the stress levels. Um, the biggest thing is, for me at least, just, just having the support of my crew. Mm -hmm. um, when I had the first patient that uh, didn't survive, um, it, it, was, it was actually kind of amusing to me. All of the, the paramedics and um, the firefighters around me, they were more concerned about my well-being because it was the first time I had a patient pass away in my care. Mm -hmm. And I, I was like, you know, there, there is a dead guy we have to focus on. And they're like, well, he's going to stay dead. We need to make sure you're okay. So just the support of the people around me really helps and I think we're getting a really good supportive atmosphere in EMS that we haven't really seen before. Right. Okay, so first of all I'm happy to hear that. I think peer support is important in these situations. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm really excited to hear actually that people who have been through the process and you know I've seen, I imagine, their share of patients who have not survived, take the time and the energy actually to support you. I think that's not obvious and they should you know, get respect for that. Um, okay, so I think that's about it. That's all of our interview for today. Uh, do you want to let people reach you in some way? Maybe email, Reddit, some sort of contact information? Yeah, if anybody would uh, like to get a hold of me, my email is adamehathaway at gmail.com. Um, that's my public email address, and anybody can give me a shout there if they'd like to. Okay, great. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Adam, for coming on the show today. Um, and uh, have a great evening. Thank you so much for having me, and same to you. Bye-bye. That's it for today's show. I'd like to thank Smiling Scenic from the OP Sound Project for the intro and outro music. I invite you to join me on our subreddit, r slash real industry real talk for the show notes and additional information. Again, that's reddit.com slash r slash real industry real talk. See you on the next show.